Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We are still in this first chapter of one of the longest sermons recorded in Scripture. Some of you feel like this is the longest sermon because we've spent so much time just on Jesus' introduction, commonly known as the Beatitudes. But hang in there, we have a lot more to go. <laughs> uh, but it's been good. It's been very uh, refreshing, at least to me, to go through these, to teach on these, to learn from Scripture, to, to, to fellowship with the Spirit over these things that Jesus has been teaching. This is, this is Jesus's, as you might, um, as we learned in college, the, the prolegomena, the first words, the, the introduction to everything that's to follow. Um, that's kind of, that prolegomena was the word used in our Bible classes for the first day of class. The first things that we were going to learn that would set in motion everything else that would come. And this is essentially a sermon. This whole sermon sets in motion the kingdom of Christ. The true kingdom of God. And we had finished the Beatitudes. Last time we were together, you and me anyway, we talked about the persecuted. And... How being persecuted is actually a necessary part of a believer's life. It's the outcome of a person who is walking according to all these Beatitudes. And we're going to be moving on from the, this persecuted, but we're going, to talk, we're going to use it a little to introduce what we're about to talk about. We're going to be in, thir- in verses 13 through 16 today. And Jesus just got done finish, just got done teaching that there is a certain blessedness given to the persecuted. And in fact, as he writes, the kingdom of heaven is reserved for those who endure persecution. And why is it that one who walks according to the good ways of God is persecuted? After all, the good ways of God are mercy, hospitality, generosity. We're supposed to be a blessing to the world around us. We're not a snare. We're not all these mean people running around bullying everybody. The good ways of God are filled with peace, love, and joy. And how is it that these people, us, deserve to be persecuted? Jesus said in John 14, 27, My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. See, the world responds well to those who are peaceable, gentle, giving. If you have something to offer them that they want, they'll respond well to you. Most of the famous businesses that you are aware of do a good job at giving people what they want. Giving people something that's useful for them. Delightful to them. But Jesus says, my peace I give to you. And people want peace, but he qualifies it by saying, I don't give you the peace that the world gives. Okay, We may be peaceable people, but it's different than what the world is looking for. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. If you want to look there real quick. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 5. John chapter 3. 
verses 19 to 20 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. Even though God's goodness is revealed and freely given, people don't want that type of goodness. That type of goodness is contrary to the primal lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. The goodness of God is truly good and delightful. It's beautiful. It's aesthetically pleasing, but only to those whose eyes have been opened. The world doesn't, the world doesn't want that type of goodness, though. Because it is contrary to them. In fact, Jesus taught, and you could just read in the Old Testament, that all of the prophets were rejected and or killed. Not all of them were murdered, but most of them were. The vast majority of the prophets were murdered by their own people. Even though, what did they do? They just told them the truth. They brought the words of life. That's what they did. I mean, look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. And just, just read these good words. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 to 23 says, But if a wicked man turns from all of his sins which he has committed, keeps my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he committed before shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? I mean, that's good words from a prophet of God. And countless of other good words are given, encouraging words are given from the prophets, given direction, given light. Truth. But yet the people did not want that type of light. People did not want that type of truth. And that's why they persecuted their own prophets. Because they love their darkness. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That is good news. That's great news. Beautiful. Wonderful. Ephesians chapter 5, which we read this morning, verse 13 to 14. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. What that's saying is if you can see something, it's because there's light there. Therefore, he says, awake you, you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Maybe some of you are like me. I wish I wasn't this way. Might come as a newsflash, but I don't really like mornings. <laughs> I don't like getting up in the morning. We just went to Illinois, and when we journeyed down there, my wife woke me up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I was not happy. I did not like that. <laughs> She wanted to get going. 
and get going we did at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I did not want to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And Jesus, or should I say Paul, but through the teaching of Jesus, Paul says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. But the problem is, we don't want to wake up. We don't want to get up. It is hard to get up. It's hard to wake up. I just want to lay there in my comfortable bed. Pull up the covers, turn off the alarm, turn out the light, and stay asleep. But this is why we are persecuted. People don't want to wake up. This is why the prophets were rejected, because people don't want to wake up. We want to live in our dreamland where all of our dreams can come true, even if it's fake. Even if it's temporal, I mean, a dream is the epitome of futility. It's not, there's nothing real about it, and the moment you wake up, it's all gone. It's all just a distant memory. Have you ever had those dreams where you woke up and you just wish you could fall back to sleep because you really liked that dream? Sorry, that wasn't reality. That's not real. And we're charged. Awake, O sleeper. Why? Because the life we're living is dreamland. The life we're living is futile. It's empty. There's nothing really to it. It's not real. It feels real. But the pleasures we seek, the lusts that we drive after, the pride of life that we want to build up for ourselves, it's all going to pass away like a dream, like waking up from a dream. And sometimes, God puts pain in our life so that we might want to wake up. Sometimes we have a nightmare in our dream, and we don't want to stay in that nightmare. We want to wake up because it's scary. Sometimes that's why God makes our life miserable at times, because He wants us to wake up and follow the light, to come after Christ, to show us the futility of life. To show us that we're not immortal. This life doesn't endure forever. Seek what is above, not which is below. And this is where you and I come in. Now, I hope I didn't have my finger in Matthew chapter 5 like I told you to. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read these few verses here. Because this is where we come into the story. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So you and I are two things in this passage. <clears throat> Jesus says, you, you, not just me, Jesus, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Now, the Bible talks a lot about light. 
We've heard a lot about light. We can easily understand the implications of light. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but we're going to focus a little bit more today on what it means to be salt, at least some of it. These Beatitudes that we read in the first 10 to 11 verses, these are mostly internal realities, but when they truly exist in us, they will produce or radiate outside of us and affect the world around us. When these Beatitudes dwell, truly dwell within us, they will radiate outside of us and impact the world around us. Okay, if you, if you drop a nuclear bomb, there's always ground zero of the mass destruction that was happened where that bomb exploded, but then you have miles and miles and miles of affected area because of the radiation. It wasn't just, all the buildings weren't wiped out, but there's still the radiation that causes that area to be dangerous. Now, we're not supposed to be dangerous per se. <laughs> we're not coming into the world like this big bomb exploding and causing mass chaos. That's not necessarily the case. But we are supposed to radiate. We're, our, the, the effect that we have in this world is supposed to not just dwell within us, but to go and radiate and affect the world around us. Now, salt, salt was something that was used, it was very, very much so in this old day. We still use it today, and we still use it in some of the ways that we used it back then. Back then, salt was primarily two things. It was a flavoring tool to make things taste a little bit better, but perhaps the most important use that it had was preservation, because they didn't have refrigeration, freezers, um, anything like that. Salt was their primary form of preservation. Um, we use it like that today too. You have a lot of cheeses that are coated in salt so that because they when they sit on the shelf they won't go bad. With our meat. You know, have you ever looked at the, the contents of beef jerky? <laughs> number one ingredient, beef, two number two, salt. <laughs> you know, it's a preservative. Things that last and have an extremely long shelf life will often have a lot of salt. Canned goods will have a lot of salt because it causes them to last longer. And what in the world? Okay, so salt is a preservative. Great, I may, I, maybe we've heard that before, but okay. Salt is a preservative, so we're a preservative. Cricket, cricket, cricket. Look at 2 Peter verses, verse 3. I mean, what do we have to say about being a preservative? I mean, that's a little bit... I mean, I understand the concept of being a preservative, but how in the world am I a preservative? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to read <clears throat> down until verse 13, unless I get carried away. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words that were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing that first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now keep in mind, there's a lot packed into this passage. I'm trying to get across one of these little details. So I'm not going to talk about every single detail of what all this means. That's just an interjection. 
Verse 5, For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now, let's stop there, verse 6. Why did the world perish back there in the days of Noah? Do you guys remember? Because all the people were evil except Noah. All the thoughts and all of the intents of everybody's heart was always evil continually. If you look at that verse, it's full of always, only, all these, all of these terms saying that the whole entire world was corrupt, void of righteousness. There was not a drop of righteousness outside of that one man, Noah. And what happened to that world? It perished, being flooded. But in verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now look at, look at that in verse, <clears throat> verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here we see one of the reasons why this world is being preserved because of the believers that he is bringing to himself. He is being long-suffering to us because he doesn't want people to perish. He will not allow his people to perish. He wants to bring all into repentance. Is the world an evil place? Yes, it is. But as long as there are people coming to God... The, Lord, the world is preserved. But in verse 10 it still says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt in fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here we see there's a promise that this earth is going to perish. Even a, what do you call that? A wheel of cheese, if it sits there long enough, is going to go away. It's going to rot out. No matter how, salt, how much salt you coat it in. A piece of beef, doesn't matter how much salt you put on it. It will preserve it for a time, but eventually it's going to rot. Unless it's spam. That is a different story. But the point being, there is a day where the world will pass away. It's already, I mean, God already knows when that is. And we, on this earth, we look for that and we long for it because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that new heaven and the new earth is described as that which <clears throat> that is a place where righteousness will dwell. Right now, the earth is corrupted because of sin and unrighteousness. Now, do you remember 
Abraham pled for a particular city back in the day, a city that nobody here probably would ever plead for. Abraham didn't want Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed. Partly because Lot was there with his family and he was a relative of his. But God was determined to go to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham was just upset about this. God, if there were 50 people, would you spare the city? What did God say? Yeah, I'll spare the city. For the sake of those 50, I would spare the city. And then Abraham catches himself and he goes down the list and finally he gets to 10. God, if there are 10 righteous souls in Sodom, will you spare the city? God says, yeah. If there are 10 righteous souls in Sodom, I will spare the city. Because the Lord loves his people. And where there is righteous, where, the, where his people are, <clears throat> the Lord will not utterly destroy his people. If there were ten people, ten, God would have spared all of Sodom with all of its sin, with all of its destruction, with all of its depravity, with all of its ego. Even that city would have been spared if only there were two handfuls of God's people there. And even when he did come down to destroy the city, he got Lot out because Lot was righteous. And he got Lot out so that Lot wouldn't be destroyed with Sodom. And this really is a parable of the end of days where the Lord will one day call his people out before he sends down the fire and the brimstone. That's how God was going to destroy the earth with fervent heat, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But yet there remains ten righteous souls. And the Lord will not yet destroy this earth. For you and I preserve it for a time. Now, I don't know what the end of days will look like. I don't know if at that point there will be no, absolutely no righteous person on the planet. But I do know this, that there is a day where God will call his people away and destroy the earth over time, you know that process of the end times. And it's very similar story as that of Sodom and Gomorrah. The earth is, I mean, there are, there are people who believe that we preserve the earth in that we make it more righteous. And one day we will make it completely righteous. I really don't see that in scripture. And, I don't, and knowing human nature and just seeing how humans work and operate, we can't make the world pure because of the corruption of the human heart. So there will be one day when the Lord will come, draw his people out and destroy the earth and re remake it. He will remake it. Better. John chapter 16, if you'd like to look there real quick. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness 
and judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So this other element of us, I mean, this is both salt and light, but we, as long as we are here on the earth, you know, this this talks about how the Spirit will convict the world. He uses us to do that. How did the Lord convict His people in the Old Testament and call them to come to God? Through the prophets. In fact, the priesthood was supposed to be doing that all along. The priests were supposed to be proclaiming the Word of God, telling people how to live before God, turning them from their sin, rebuking the people. They weren't doing that. Prophets came and they were rejected. But that was all that was God pleading with the people, through the people. How is the Lord going to convict the world of righteousness? He's going to do it through us. And he doesn't do it just because he wants the world to live better. Okay, there's a lot of humanitarian effort out there that's trying to make people do better things. But in our pursuit of righteousness in the world, you know, for, for instance, it's a good thing to fight for the, for the unborn babies. It's a good thing to fight for justice for those, for those who are trafficked into sexual slavery. It is good for us to feed the poor. It is good for us to work these works of righteousness. But if in all of our works of righteousness the Lord is not uplifted, then it is simply a humanitarian effort. But but this righteousness that we pursue, this righteousness that we stand for, is is a means that God intends for the people to actually see the righteous one. For us to show the world that righteousness is still here. Look at the light. Look at this. So we are preserving, in a sense, righteousness on this earth. So that people can see it. And it can be a stage for Christ to be uplifted. John chapter 12. If you are already in John, if you're still, if you're still there. If not, just I'll read it real quick. John chapter 12, verses 35 to 36 say... While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. Even though he had done so many things, so many good things, he was supposed to do those things. That's what light does. Yet they did not believe. In John chapter 8, he says, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You know, these things, these these works of righteousness, as means by which we preserve righteousness on the earth, is a segue into how we are also a light. Because we keep righteousness here. We as we, while we, the body of Christ, remain here on the earth, the Lord is being long-suffering as people are coming in, as people are coming into the fold. And while the righteous remain, the Lord will not destroy His own. And as we are here, we stand for the ways of God, giving Christ a platform, giving Christ 
a limelight. Let your good works be done so that what? We may glorify the Father who is in heaven. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your Father and glorify him. John 8.12 says, I, Jesus, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay? The light will shine upon him, exposing his works, exposing him, cleansing him with this light. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, I'm not going to go back there, but it talks about how we are partakers in the divine nature. When we come to Christ, we are partakers in the divine nature of Jesus Christ, who is light. So now now we become like him. We become a light to the world, just like he says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill. What does it say about that city set on a hill? Cannot be hid. You're going to be seen. Let me read that again. Let that sink in. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are this light shining out in the darkness. Light cannot be hidden when it is out there on display. By nature, it pierces the darkness so that everybody can see where that light is coming from. The, sp- the space, up in the sky, this huge void. But yet, I mean, how many trillions of miles of light years away are those stars up there? In that big, deep, dark void. But yet we can still see them. That's always blown my mind. Like, how, th- There's no way those could be trillions of light years away. How can the world could we see something that far away? I'm still a little suspicious about that, but the point, of, the point of the matter is they are really far away, but because it's light in the darkness, we can see them. The only thing that hides them is the greater light of the day, the sun. That's the only thing that hides them. And clouds, but that's a different illustration. The point being, you can't hide light. Light will shine. That's what it does. Are you shining? Do people see your good works? We like to hide our good works in this false sense of humility. But Jesus is saying, you're supposed to be seen. People are supposed to see you. Not because it's about you but because you're supposed to be pointing people to Jesus. And if people can't see you, how can you point them to Jesus? A city set on a hill cannot be hid, but yet we try to hide ourselves. Partly because we don't want the responsibility of being out there, and if we fall, then people will mock us, and people will point their fingers. So we just stay hidden because it's safe. I know how that feels. I'm like that. I know how it goes. But yet this is so convicting. You cannot be hid. You cannot hide yourself. That's not what you're made for. You're not made to hide yourself in a false sense of humility. True humility 
is ready to get out there and be seen because you are not you are confident in the work of Christ. That's true humility. Humility is confidence. Humility is con- full confidence that Jesus Christ is all the good that is in me. And I'm going to go show that because when I'm going out there and I'm showing the works of the cross, when I am proclaiming the word, when I am showing mercy, when I am being generous, I know that it's all from Jesus and I have no doubts in my mind. The proud thing to do is to hide because the pride of hiding says, I have to hide this because they're my works and I don't want people to see me and my works. That's pride. That's why it's prideful to hide because what you're doing is treating your works like they're yours and you don't want to be glorified for your works. If somebody's going to glorify you, let them do it, but you glorify God. And when you're glorifying God, they're going to see that. And eventually, maybe they'll stop giving you glory, but you know that these are all from Christ. So you're going to go out there, you're going to be the city on a hill, and you're going to show people Jesus. You're just going to do it, because that's who you are. It's all about Jesus. That's humility. It's all about Jesus. And you're going to go and show Jesus to the world at whatever cost. You can't, I mean, that's your nature now. You're partakers of the divine nature, the divine natures of light, to be shine, to be shining in this world of darkness. It's not about you, it's about him. That's why you're shining. When you're hiding, then it's all about you because you're concerned about you. I mean, don't look, I mean, he's saying right here, you cannot hide yourself. You cannot be hidden. Verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. If God didn't want, if God wanted darkness to be there, then he wouldn't have lit the candle. It's foolishness to light a candle and put a basket on top of it to hide the light. What's the point of even having it? If you're just going to put it under a basket. I'm going to light this candle because I just want to light candles, and I'm just, but I don't want to see the light. The whole reason a candle exists is to show light. You don't light one and then hide it in a closet or under a basket. That's the whole reason it exists. So that it'll provide light to the room. You exist to shine in this world, to show the world Jesus. That's why you exist. If you're not doing that, if the people in this community are not seeing the light of Christ in us, then we are not doing what we're created for. But we feel humble, right? We feel humble because I'm just, you know, this lowly person, you know, hiding out, doing my own thing, not really getting anybody's business, good citizen. That's not what you were created for. Yeah, you're not created to be a nuclear bomb just destroying everybody, but you are created to be light. And if you're not shining, then you're not, you're not doing what you're created to do. It's verse 16, he's telling you, he's giving you the freedom. Go let your light so shine before men, so they may see your good works. Let the people see what you're doing. Let the people see the good deeds that you're doing. It's okay. Why? You have to qualify it, because it's not about you, remember. So they may see your good works, And in seeing them, 
Somehow they're pointed to the Father, that they may glorify the Father in heaven. See, it is not about you, but when you're a truly humble, your life is all about Jesus. So it's okay to go out and let people see your good works. Because as far as you're concerned, the people are seeing what Christ has done. It's not of you. It's not about you. And when it's truly not about you, that's going to come out of your mouth. I'm going to go be generous. I'm going to go be hospitable. I'm going to go show mercy to people. Hospitable. And, it's, and I'm going to do it in such a way that people know that God has transformed me. God has given me renewal. God has given me life. God has given me liberty. This is all for Christ. That's why I'm doing this. You can have the freedom. Let your light so shine before men. Let the people see your good works. Because if they don't see it, you're not really promoting righteousness on this earth. You're not really being salt. You're not really preserving righteousness. You're not really standing for righteousness if nobody's being affected by it. You're not really being humble because you're treating your good works as though they're all about you. <coughs> when you're hiding. Let the people see your good works. Because if they don't see it, then how, are, how in the world are they supposed to see Jesus? If this church is just back here, off, you know, off the beaten path, Nobody even knows that the church is here. Nobody really knows that we're here. A true body of believers is here. How can our message get to them? No. It's, and it's not even about making them come on Sundays. It's about people need Jesus. And if we're just out here conglomerating on Sundays and Wednesdays and learning all these good things and keeping all of our learning and growing and learning and hearing... We're not really shining light. We're not really learning properly. Because like I said, these Beatitudes, these are most, for the most part internal qualities, internal realities. So if they're all internal, how in the world are we supposed to be persecuted? Why? Because these internal realities are producing good outside. Outside of here. And if there's good stuff coming out, going on inside this church, if it's truly good stuff that's going on inside this church, it's going to be seen out there. It's the nature of light. We might be off the beaten path a little bit, but let's shine. Let's be a city set on a hill so that the people can see it. Let's be okay with that. Let's be okay being seen because the people need to see Jesus somehow. Yeah, not everybody is going to see it rightly. Some people are going to be like, man, you guys are awesome. But you know what? There will be people who eventually who will say, man, God is so good. I mean, that's just the nature of people. Like People will give glory to people. It's just the way you're going to run into that. Just because somebody's giving you glory doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It's just the nature of man. Eventually, there will be people who start saying, man, God is so good. He is, he is using you. Christ is so vibrant. I just can't deny it. There will be people who see the light of Christ in our good works. So let's not be afraid of people seeing it. Stay humble Remember that all these things are of God and they're for God. Of Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. That's what the Scriptures say. We need to keep that on the forefront of our hearts and our spirits. But it is false humility to say that and then try to stay in the shadows. That's not your nature. It's not the nature of Christ. 
It's time to shine. If you aren't shining, if people aren't seeing your good works, then you are suppressing the truth that's within you. You have all this knowledge. You have all this understanding. You have all this learning. But if we're not being seen by men, we are suppressing the truth. We are hiding it in, dark, in the cloak of darkness. We're putting a bushel on top of our candle. We need to stop, you know, at some point, don't, don't, don't take this the wrong way, but at some point you need to stop your, your agenda of learning and go out and shine. Go out and do. Otherwise, all this learning is just kind of going to waste. In a sense. Learning is good. I love learning. I love reading. I love listening to sermons. I love being taught. I love it. But I am learning wrongly when I'm not taking that learning and using it for the good of everybody around me. So let your light so shine before men. You're the salt of the earth, okay? God loves you. God's not going to destroy you. In fact, everybody around you is supposed to benefit from you being there. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have benefited if there were ten righteous people in that city. All of them would have benefited. And this world benefits from us being here. They, they may not know it. They may hate us, but they benefit. Because God's mercy remains, his long-suffering remains because we're here. And because there are still many that he's bringing into the fold. But let's, be, let's, be an act, let's not just be a passive benefit to the world, which is the salt, but let's also be an active benefit to the world. Let's go out there and show them Christ's goodness. Show them the truth. Show them what, what it is to be a Christian. Show them salvation. Let's go be a light. I thank you, Lord, for our commission. I thank you, Lord, that you have empowered us and called us into the ministry, not by works that we have done, but according to your mercy. <clears throat> Lord, humble us enough so that we could be bold. Help us to not live deceived that we're humble because we're behind the scenes kind of keep into ourself, making sure that we don't cause a scene. Help us to see the truth that you have commissioned us to go out and be seen. Because you made us to be light, just like Christ was a light. He was meek, he was humble, he was gentle, but yet he, he <laughs> completely changed the world. When he was alive, when he was walking there, he was the most meek and humble man. He didn't try to cause a scene. But yet, everybody wanted to see him. And Lord, help give us the true humility and the true meekness of Jesus Christ. So we can go out there and bring people's eyes up to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.